Good morning. You guys, Passion Week is all about being broken and restoration, about the servant leader jumping up and putting us back together. Thank you, Pastor Joshua, and thank you all, and have a wonderful week. We'll see you. That was almost as good as the time in Sunday school where I sat on the stool, some of you guys were in there, and it collapsed. And we were filming. It was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> Good morning to you. Um, and uh, let's, let's pray together. We're going to need it. I'm going to steal from Pastor Joshua. Put your hand on your heart this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and show yourself to us this morning. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. We invite you here. I ask you to guide me, and I ask you to, to open us up to hear new things you have to say. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. This is an unusual Sunday, not just because I broke the podium, um, but, but uh, normally, we, uh, we sing and, and worship for a little bit longer. Um, it's about half the time as we normally do. And, and today we cut it short because I'm gonna tell a lot of stories this morning. Um, this is the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week um, where, we, where we commemorate the, the, the final week of Jesus' ministry. And today, of course, is Palm Sunday. And uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening um, in the scripture during this time and I'm just going to tell a bunch of stories. Can we do that? Is there any way we can get some of the lights down? Because we are going um, to to bring in some video. I've told you guys about this amazing video find that archaeologists have found. And I just want to make sure that you can all see it. I mean, it is a little bit grainy, but it's been restored in high definition, which is amazing. These archaeologists today, what they're able to do. Um, but uh, I'm going to tell a bunch of stories this morning about what took place um, in this final week and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy telling stories. Um, when I became a dad, I realized a few things. I realized that people enjoy stories more than they do pie charts. <laughs> it's true. I used to want to, like, I'm going to get information down when I teach, and you're going to get it, and it's going to, you just, just follow me because it's lots of logic. And then I realized my, my girls would just stare at me like, and so we started telling stories all the time every single night, and we have genres of stories that we've done for years and years, and because, um, uh, well, because we can. <laughs> and we, uh, we, one of the, the main ones we came up with was uh, this, this fictional sheriff in the 1800s who was somewhere in Nevada, um, and he was called Cowboy Pete, and he had an assistant called Rocky Raccoon. I'm hoping this never gets out so Yoko Ono doesn't sue me. Um, some of you, <laughs> she owns the, forget it. Um, and, uh, and so I would tell these stories, and, and the girls would be so into it. We'd, we, I mean, uh, we've, we've probably told a couple hundred Cowboy Pete stories. I don't remember anything that happens. I have to ask Emily, like, details. I'm like, what happened? Who is that? And she's like, don't you remember? It's your story you told. I said, I have no idea. But one of the things they would always want is for themselves to be in the story. So they would say, 
Dad, we want to be in the Cowboy Pete store. I'm like, it's in the 1800s. What, how do I do that? I can't mix genres. The storyteller in me goes, yeah, stop it. But we would do it. And so these, you know, random cowgirls would show up and Cowboy Pete would have to save them. Now, the reason I tell you this is because um, there's something about the way that Jesus told stories that it actually does that, and it, it, it's this. Jesus told parables not because they were fun, not because they were entertaining. He told parables because people would see themselves in the story. He told them for their own sake, in other words. They would hear it, he would say it, and then they would react somehow, and the way they reacted sort of would, would be a wonderful indication about where their heart's at. So I'm going to tell some stories today with lots of different groups in, uh, that, that, are, that are involved um, in these uh, dynamics, and um, by the end of the morning, uh, I, I'm hoping that maybe we could see our own hearts a little bit better, amen? amen. All right, so we're going to start here with um, the, the, uh, the triumphal entry. Now, this was Passover week. This is about 30 AD, not 33. Somebody actually messed up on the calendar, that's true. Um, so somewhere around 30 AD, um, it, and Passover, we've talked about this before in this church, Passover was a, was a huge deal. There, there were a, a few very important feasts that would happen in Jerusalem every year. And the Jews are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, and they would try to come for at least one feast a year. And this made it extremely crowded and uh, uh, extremely exciting. Okay, so just a few things to keep in mind. First of all, Jerusalem is jam-packed. It's not this huge area at the time. It's actually a pretty small area, um, and it's packed. So if you're claustrophobic like me, you would say, but you know, God's everywhere, right? Like, can we celebrate on the hill instead? Um, so um, it, it's packed. Feast time is always stressful because of the possibility of riots and revolts. When this many people got together, it would give them a feeling of possibilities, a feeling of power. Now, the reason this was important is because they always wanted to revolt. <laughs> the Jews had been dominated for centuries, one empire after another. You're starting with Assyria, then Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and the Egyptian Greeks, and then the Syrians, and then the Romans. And, and so here, Rome is still here. And they had all these great things in mind. It was going to be, man, they were the chosen people. And Passover was a celebration of what happened in the Exodus many, many years ago. We all know the story of the Exodus and of Moses. Well, this is what they were celebrating. It was a time when Israel came out from under domination of one kingdom. A hero came. And when the hero came, he brought them out from under that kingdom and brought them to their destiny. They are celebrating this. And isn't that interesting? Pilate is the governor. He's hated for his ruthlessness, just like Pharaoh was hated for his ruthlessness. And Jesus, this traveling teacher, is a celebrity, and people think maybe he could be our Moses. Maybe he could be our hero. He's a celebrity for many reasons. One, he's an incredibly charismatic speaker. People love to hear his stories. People love to hear his teachings. Uh, more than that, he does things. Things happen around him. It's very strange. People with, people with eyes that don't work, suddenly their eyes work. Lepers. 
who have been begging for decades, suddenly they're made clean. Crazy things happen and word gets around, especially now. Because something's just taken place a matter of days ago, okay? Days ago in the town right next to Jerusalem, just two miles away. So you have to picture thousands of people already descending on Jerusalem, and then the story spreads like wildfire as all the people are coming in. Here's the story. A man was dead, not just a little bit dead, but days dead, stinky dead, very extremely dead, not just mostly dead. All dead. And every, there were hundreds of witnesses, and it was a big deal because they were all expecting him to come and do something about it, and he didn't come. And so this man died. And then Jesus comes into town with his posse, and he stands outside the grave, and he says, Hey! Lazy boy! Lazy, lazy boy. See what I did there? Come out! And he comes out. Okay. I don't know what you would have done, but here's what I would have done. Ah! 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 Where are we running? I have no idea where I'm running. I don't even know. I, I have to. Can you imagine? That's what I would have done. Seriously. It would have been so frightening. You just, you have to run. You're just, he's alive. No, he was dead. He's alive. Oh my gosh. I don't know what to do. Imagine if hundreds of people did that. Can you imagine how quickly that story spread? So it spreads, and where does it go? It goes to Jerusalem. All these people who are already hyped up because they're thinking maybe our Moses is coming, right? Maybe he's coming. Maybe this is him. Ah, he just rose somebody from the dead. Are you serious? Are you serious? Here's the way I like to think about it. He's already done some pretty amazing things. One of them was just crazy. He, he spoke for a long time. Everybody was so enraptured, they didn't realize they were hungry. It was a long way to the McDonald's. <laughs> and, and so he gets this kid who's just got a little lunch for himself. That's what they say in Minnesota, by the way, a little lunch, don't you know? He brings a little lunch, and he prays over it, and suddenly there's enough lunch to feed 5,000 people. It's not so little a lunch anymore. So here's the way I think about it. I really think all these stories circulating, you see, all of these things coming, I think people, I think they're, Wheels were turning. Well, wait a minute. He heals people with limbs that are, you know, even cut off or something. He's able to heal bodies that are broken. He's able to create food out of thin air. He's able to do all of these things. And now he's able to raise people from the dead. Imagine the army we could bring against Rome. We don't have to worry about supplies. He can just, whatever. We don't have to worry about our people being injured. We just bring them to him, and suddenly they're good as new. Go, second wave of people to the centurions, go get them. And even if they die, we can bring them right back. We got him. So this is the mindset. It sounds crazy, but this was the mindset. So here he is now. He comes in to Jerusalem. He's just from the next town over in Bethany. Everybody in Bethany knows the story. Now a bunch of people in Jerusalem know the story. And he comes into Jerusalem and everybody is going insane. This is not maybe what we've heard before. This wasn't a worship service per se. It was, sort of, but it was more of a subversive political rally. 
It's really what was going on here. Now, the word Hosanna has a very specific meaning. It means, save us, O God. Save us! He comes in and they're shouting, save us! Interesting. And then they pull out these branches. Save us! And then they sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the... All these things start going crazier and crazier. Each one of these things had a meaning. And everywhere these guys are looking, they're connecting it to something in their history because they know their history. They see the palm branches. You know what the palm branches were? They were like the stars and the stripes for us. They were a symbol of Jewish independence. It was like their flag. And here, the Roman guards are watching all this happening. What do you think was going on in their minds? I think they were probably terrified. They see this mob being whipped up. They see him riding on a donkey, which is a, a fulfillment of an Old Testament uh, a situation where a king who rides in on a donkey, they start quoting that, and they're doing all this stuff, they're going crazy, they're going, here he is, he's gonna be the king, he's gonna rebel, it's gonna happen at Passover, this is gonna be amazing. That is what was going on on Palm Sunday. Now, there was a prophetic irony there, wasn't there? Because he really was the king coming into Jerusalem, just not the kind of king they were thinking. So that's Palm Sunday. They follow him, this crowd, swells around him. You have to take the crowd with you now where we go this morning. You have to take the crowd with you because they're following him. They follow him all the way uh, to the temple. And he stops. He looks around the temple. And you know what he does? Nothing. Nothing. He goes home. Now, if you are one of the religious leaders watching this happen... How would you feel? Well, you might not know how you would feel, but fortunately, I do. And now you're going to, because we actually have the testimony of this man, and he's going to share it with you right now. This is from 33 AD, The Miracles of Archaeology. Give me that old, old, old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Hello! Welcome to the old, 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 old time religion hour. Your number one source for all Passover news. I'm your host, Methuselah Jones, the younger. <laughs> well, it is that time of year again, the Passover is upon us, and what is everyone talking about? Yes, this rabbi, this man from Galilee who wanders about in bare feet, spouting obscenities, heresies, untold wisdoms. The masses are rising up and following him. That brings us to our editorial segment. Well, yesterday was a little over the top. The rumors about Jesus were already extremely extreme, and then they say he goes and raises a man from the dead? I doubt it. And then they all start following him around, welcoming him into the heart of Jerusalem. Hmm. And they come in, here he comes, this Jesus the Christ, I use the term quite loosely. And they wave their arms in the air, they throw their cloaks on the ground, they pick palm branches from living trees and wave them, throw them at his feet, it was indecent. It was uncalled for. Can we be honest, you and I? Yes, we can. 
We can do that. We all hate Rome, don't we? Yes, we do. You hate Rome. I hate Rome. Even Thaddeus the imbecile down on XXVI station hates Rome. He doesn't admit it, though, because he's a pansy. He also can't grow a full beard. Half of that is fake. And that's not a rumor. That's fact. <clears throat> but I'll be honest with you. I kind of sympathize with Rome right now, having to deal with all of this hubbub and to-do. Mm -mm. I don't like it. This new rabbi, he can't be trusted. No, he cannot. But you know who can be trusted? I can. So, we hope you'll stay with us throughout Passover week. We'll be bringing you up-to-the-minute updates, interviews, and on-the-spot guests that you will wish to see. Isn't that amazing? Wow. They don't like it one bit. Here's what they say. The world has gone after him. And it wasn't like a wow. It was like the world's gone after him. It's a menacing whisper. Yeah, that's right. Here's what they mean by that. Well, here's a map of all the, the nations that are listed in Acts chapter 2 at the, the following feast of, of where people came from into Jerusalem. These are just the ones listed. You can see they're all over the place. They're all northern Africa as far as Rome uh, to the west, uh, uh, way over uh, to, to the uh, region of Iran to the east. They're coming from all over the place. So here you have uh, both Gentile God-fearing people who weren't necessarily Jews, and Jews living in all these places, speaking all these different languages. So it's not just a crowd of people that like him, it's a mob that is, is represented uh, by, by every class that you can think of. This is frightening for them. So, he looks around the temple, and he goes home. Telling the story in four parts this morning, the second part is this thing that we call the cleansing as I cleanse my own palate. This is the next day. Jesus goes home. I don't know how he got out of the crowds. I'm thinking they must have had some sort of system somehow, you know, have a whole bunch of Jesus lookalikes and they all like band together and huddle and they scatter, you know, or something. I don't know. But he's somehow able to get away from the crowds and he goes back to Bethany to his home, uh, or to, to his, his friend's house, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. The next day, he comes back into the temple. Now, I'm gonna uh, just give you all sorts of stuff about the temple, some fun visuals that are out now. There's a, this is a recreation, a, a miniaturized version of the temple um, that I believe this is in Jerusalem. It just looks uh, really amazing. It's on a raised platform here that you can see from miles outside the city. This is a, a smaller miniaturized version, but it's supposed to be far more accurate to modern, modern archaeology. Uh, it was much bigger probably than the one I just showed you. Look at this. Look at the scale here. This temple courtyard is just absolutely massive. Um, there is a giant who is overlooking the city as well, which would have been very scary, but this is not his story. <laughs> it's actually the guy who created this miniature. It took him like 20 years or something. It's really phenomenal. Um, look how big that is, and you can't hardly see the people are like dots here. Okay, it's incredibly huge. Most of that, what you see on the outside, is called the Temple of the Gentiles, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So uh, I want to show you also, uh, uh, this is, um, comes from um, some scollars and developers at a website called uh, Jerusalem.com. Now, 
this is a, a really cool recreation. So just walk here and, and, and imagine you're going up and, and this whole area is, is crowded. You're shoulder to shoulder coming through and you're about to walk up uh, and, uh, and see your first sight as you're a pilgrim coming from a long way away. This, uh, I'm going to read something as, as, uh, as we watch this. The city itself and the neighborhood became more and more crowded as the feast approached. Uh, even the temple offered a strange sight at this season. Now, here's the courtyard. Look around. Look how vast it was. It was big enough to hold 25 football fields. Biggest raised platform in the entire world. Uh, even the temple offered a strange uh, sight at the season for, in parts of the outer courts, a wide space was covered with pens for sheep, goats, and cattle to be used for offerings. This is during Passover time. Sellers shouted the merits of their beasts. So here, as you're watching this, just imagine. Imagine all the things being described here. Sellers shouting the merits of their, be uh, their beasts, uh, sheep bleated, oxen lowed, sellers of doves also had a place set apart for them. Potters offered a choice from huge stacks of clay and dishes and ovens for roasting and eating the Passover lamb. Booths for wine, oil, salt, and all else needed for sacrifices. Invited customers. Persons going to and from the city shortened their journey by crossing the temple grounds, often carrying burdens. Stalls to change foreign money into the shekel of the temple, which alone could be paid to the priests, were numerous. The whole confusion making the sanctuary like a noisy market. Do you see the picture? All of that in the temple courtyard. It doesn't look like a temple anymore, does it? It's, it's, it's crowded, it's jam-packed, and all of that chaos going around. I'll show you what came inside here just to give you a little bit more of a picture. As uh, so we go inside. So this is called uh, uh, the Temple of the Women. And it's kind of ironic because, um, well, it's partly kind of ironic because I have a black bar over the bottom. But um, you, uh, you look around, the women actually weren't even allowed in this part. The women were allowed in the balcony above. They would have to climb up these stairs and look down. So that would have been extremely crowded because there's not a whole lot of room up there, as you can see. Um, but the men and the women were always separated in worship uh, you can see there's four different, in the four different corners, uh, there's, uh, they would put uh, wood for the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. They'd have different vessels in here. This would have been a place where the Levites would cut their hair. They would also have sort of ceremonies for them to sort of go up to the next level. Um, they had a ceremonial pool for washing, uh, particularly for people who wanted to be cleansed from leprosy, which, you know, it was a, a broad description of all sorts of skin diseases. And right up on these steps, the Levites would be up there singing, um, you know, all kinds of different songs from the Psalms, uh, from the Torah, and uh, from rabbinic tradition. So that is uh, the court of the women. Now we're going to go up and go inside to the next level. This is called the inner court. The women were no longer allowed to come in here. By the way, the Gentiles were not allowed even to go into the court of the women. The Gentiles were still outside in the big, big court. And this one, only men, only Jewish men were allowed to come in. And this is where the Levites and the priests would do uh, the, the bulk of, of the work that we know for them. They would uh, do sacrifices out here, all kinds of stuff. Um, and as you, as you continue on, you go into the holy place. Even the Levites are not allowed into the holy place. This is only the priests. And we'll just take you in there real quick. Isn't this cool? 
um, you can see this as a whole guided tour and, and stuff. Uh, uh, Jerusalem.com, I think, is the, the website. Um, and so finally, you go into the holy place, and uh, this is the place that only the, the priests can go in. You've got the golden lampstand. You've got the table for showbread. Robert, would you mind uh, speeding that up a little bit? And that's okay. <laughs> for some reason, it clicked onto the next slide. Not a problem. Um, so anyway, at the end, we'll go, I think it's the next one. Yep. Next slide. Just click it. Awesome. And it did that again. And go. Awesome. So you can see uh, this was all made of solid gold. Then you have the curtain, and behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant itself. So this was the holiest place. Only the high priest was able to go in behind that curtain. This is where the presence of God was said to dwell. Inside of that box, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all sorts of uh, uh, things. You had uh, manna, you had Aaron's rod, all those things um, that were to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so... Uh, uh, this, is, this is the temple. This is the center. The, all of these things are uh, um, what makes Israel Israel in their minds. Okay? Jesus comes in to the outer courts, that first place we were in, that really huge, wide place. And here's what he does. He walks over and he sees the people changing money and he walks over, and he picks up the table, and he flips it. And he goes over where all the animals are, and he starts opening cages and yelling, go, go, ah, ah, go. He's kicking cages. He's flipping more tables over, and he starts yelling. And here's what he said. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it into a den of thieves. Now, you have to take the crowd with you. The crowd is already surrounding him. He's already the center of attention in the entire temple, this huge area. His mob is following him and sort of just giving him enough space just to move around. And these guys, these money changers and the people with the, with the animals, they're scared to death. You know why? Because of the crowd. The crowd is reacting like... <laughs> he's awesome we love this guy and everyone else is running for the hills now here's the question why did he do it Jesus would often do what many rabbis did he would throw out a line that was from something they recognized the same way we might throw out a movie line or something um, they would throw out a line that they recognized and, and with that line, he's, he's wanting them to remember the larger context. So he has that line about a house of prayer for all nations. I want to read this here. This is from Isaiah 56, because this is where he gets it. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let him not say that. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, 
I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Now you tell me, is what's going on in the temple, does that look like that? The foreigners are not, not only are they not allowed to make sacrifices, they're not even able to go in to the inner court, nor the outer court. They're stuck way out on the outside, and what's going on the outside? It's a marketplace. It is a crowded, noisy marketplace. It is not the house of prayer that he made. So all these people have made pilgrimages, maybe come hundreds of miles. They come in there, they're excited to finally worship this God who they've been hearing about. And they come, they can't even pray because there's madness about. My house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've shut these people out. That's what he's saying. It's not just that there was business going on. It's where it was happening. Jesus is going to do this to these people. You see, the, the Jewish people, they had a corner on salvation at the time, they thought. They were God's chosen people. And he's going to continually needle. He's gonna, he, it's, it's a sore spot, and he's going he's gonna to poke it, and he's going to keep poking it because his mission is to open up salvation for all peoples. So this is his first real clear indication. Guys, it's not just about you. It's about all, and I'm here to open it up for all. Do you see it? Isn't that amazing? He cleanses the temple. Even love that phrase that we've adopted. God loves the outcasts and the foreigners. He's a God of adoption. He does not want to see foreigners restricted. He wants to invite them in. And they're not second-class citizens. Also interesting is that as he's getting the animals out of the temple, I kind of wonder if he might have been issuing a sort of prophetic shot off the bow, if you will. No longer are animals even going to need to be in a temple. The sacrificial system's about to go away. Here we go. Here's the fallout. Now, that's a big deal, what he just did. Okay? There was almost a riot yesterday. Now, today, there's almost a riot, too. And you have to see the reactions. The crowds love it. They start singing Hosanna again, I bet. They're raising, they're waving their palm branches again, all these kids. And they start making way for people now because the temple, it was not only just pilgrims, but because of this man, you have them carrying sick people in here too because they hear he does stuff and they open up way, you know, little lanes and they're carrying lame people in and Jesus starts healing them right there in the middle of the temple, in the middle of all this chaos. The Sadducees and the Pharisees hate it. They absolutely hate it, and particularly the Sadducees, and they begin to seek a way to discredit him. Now for another update. All this undue hubbub over this rabbi is really causing my temperature to rise, and I can ill afford that. As if yesterday's occurrences weren't bad enough, what happened this morning it's been the worst thing I've ever heard of. This Jesus breaks into the temple of the Gentiles and begins hurting the feelings of all the honest businessmen in there just trying to make enough profit to feed their families. He, what does he do? He makes a whip. He beats them and scares them out of the 
temple, leaving only coins and floating chicken feathers to... I'd like to welcome Zebediah, Zephron, Jehubaleth, Raphael, Aristotle. Let's, uh, let's just go with uh, Randy. Randy. Yeah, friends call me Randy. Randy? Mm -hmm. You are a Sadducee in that very temple. Yes, yeah, I was. Answer me this. Is it true that this rabbi put his foot violently to a chicken? I, uh, I wish it weren't there, uh, but that is a 100% uh, factually correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is horrible. Yeah. Well, what did he say? He, uh, he was going on about the uh, being a temple for the nations, a house of prayer for the nations. What? And here we are, in the court of the Gentiles. I mean, really. <laughs> That doesn't even make any sense. Not a lick of sense. Like they even matter. I know. Yeah, <laughs> like they matter. Right? Not for anything. Nope. Not, not one thing. Nope. I mean, this guy, Jesus, he's going against thousands of years of tradition. Just well, throwing it out the window. Well, that may be a slight exaggeration. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hear, hear me out here. Where are the Jews from uh, Antioch, the city in Antioch, and uh, even Alpine supposed to bring their sacrifices? I, There's I, nowhere for the animals. I don't believe I know where Alpine is. Where is that? Well, um, yeah, I, I don't know where Alpine is either. Okay. So what are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Yes. We're going to discredit him. Brilliant. Yep. I like it. We're going to come in and give him all kinds of tricky yes. questions about the resurrection yes. of the dead and we'll try and catch him in a lie. Excellent. And you don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead or zombies, do you? Precisely. So it's brilliant strategy. Brilliant. I love it. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that. Well, I hope it all goes well. Yeah, me Keep too. us posted and we'll check back with you after we're, the Passover. We're real excited. All right. Sadducees are a little different than you inspected, aren't, aren't they? So they plot against him. He goes home to Bethany that night, and the next day is uh, uh, going to begin part three here, the Tuesday temple showdown. There's a whole lot of stuff that happened this week, obviously, that we can't get to. He, there was a whole fig tree incident. He wept over Jerusalem. There's going to be other things that happened, but for the sake of time, we're only telling some of the, to me, what the, the, the biggest stories that, that highlight what happened. Um, this is a, uh, a day, a particular morning, that was a, a battle for the hearts and minds of the people here. And uh, it was very public, once again, bring the crowds with you um, as, we, as we imagine this. Um, on the resurrection, um, actually, I think I had this whole, yes, okay. Here is the, the question that uh, Randy and his posse of Sadducees came up with. Okay. Now these are the elites. These are the intellectual elites who who they're not, they're not from the country. They live in Jerusalem. They are wealthy. They're a ruling class, very aristocratic people, and they're the Ivy Leaguers, so they're the highest educated. And they come, and this was a common tactic to come and ask these kinds of questions. And there was definitely a hint of mockery. Can you see it? Matthew twenty-two, teacher Moses says. Actually, you know what? We gotta we gotta make him a little bit. More snitty here, okay? So it's like, hey, teacher. Moses says, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Isn't that right? That's right, okay? So, and he goes on in this. Now, suppose there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died. Having no children, he left his wife to his brother, which is kind of weird, but it's in the Levitical law, all right? Whatever. So, also, the second and the third went down 
all the way to the seventh. They kept dying, one after the other. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was something hereditary. We don't know. But that's not even part of it. <laughs> Last of all, the woman herself dies. So, in the resurrection of the dead, <laughs> therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? Do you see what I'm saying? Because they all married her? Do you, want, you, want, you see what? You, you get my... You, you, you. I can't say for sure, but I think Jesus' eyes glazed over <laughs> this question. I really do. I think he was probably like, okay, I see where you're going. <laughs> huh, look at that bird. <laughs> oh, well, are you still asking? Okay. <clears throat> so he snaps to it. They are like, they're high-fiving. They're doing all kinds of stuff because they think that they've just made a total mockery, not, of the re not just of the resurrection of the dead and this out-of-town hick rabbi that's come in there, and they're going to, you know, the little mockery isn't just towards Jesus, it's also toward this Lazarus legend, as if that's actually true. Of course, there's no resurrection of the dead. So they're trying to influence the crowd just through mockery. Not only that, there's, there is some intellectual prowess supposedly behind this as well, because he's going to sound like an idiot, no matter who he says this woman is going to be married to. Okay, so here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> no, no, uh, you know, beating around the bush. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now stop right there. Stop reading for a minute. I know you people. You'll keep reading. Look what he says. First of all, you don't know the scriptures. Well, I never. I don't know. I spent six years in post-college education for this, and I know the scriptures inside and out. But he says, you don't even know the scriptures. Nor do you know the power of God. He keeps going. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see what he just said? He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham. In other words, I still am the God of Abraham who was dead, right? Yes. Yes, he's still the God of Abraham because there is a life after people die. We'll get back to you on that. Ouch. Very difficult very difficult. Let's find out how Randy fared after this. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Zedediah. How did that go for you? Yeah. Well, yes. You're not, you're not saying words. I'm sorry. I'm... Um... So I'm going to go to my next guest now, uh, Ezra W. Smith, a Pharisee from the town of Bethany and great-great-great-grandfather from Michael. Ezra, welcome to the show. Hello, my name is Ezra W. Smith. Prepare to know me. I am fully prepared. Excellent. So your people, the Pharisees, are clearly very irritated with this Jesus. Yes. Tell me what you plan to do about it. 
Well, first of all, we don't plan to question the resurrection. Mm. <laughs> that would be a stupid tactic. I see. No, we will catch you in the Torah. Mm. That is our fastball. I see. Yes, our wheelhouse. Mm. Nice. Our unleavened bread and butter. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very nice. Please explain your tactic. Well, we will simply ask him, which is the greatest commandment? Uh, okay. And if he says, uh, thou shalt not murder, yes, for example? Think of it that way, then we simply say what? An adultery is just fine with you. Aha! <laughs> I see where you're going with that. That's brilliant. Did you come up with that yourself? Indeed I did. Very nicely done, sir. We'll keep us posted. And we will keep you posted. Check back afterwards. Thank you. Remember, Methuselah, friends are friends forever. I'm going to put this to a vote. Who believes that a certain pastor in here needs to wear that all the time? Yes? Motion carried. Motion carried. The Pharisees were far different than the Sadducees. These two groups hated each other. That's the first thing you need to know. The Pharisees were, they, they were in charge of the, uh, um, all the synagogues all out to the far reaches of everywhere. They were not cosmopolitan. They were not Jerusalem. They were not temple. They were the men of the people, which I know might come as a surprise to you based on the, the way that we talk about them sometimes, but that's the way they were thought of. So here now, they are coming at Jesus, having seen their rivals, the Sadducees, fall flat. Excuse me. One of the scribes, who was uh, among the Pharisees, came up and heard them disputing with one another, seeing what he answered them well, or that he answered them well, and asked, which commandment is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, The greatest is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no com other commandment greater than these. Now look what he does. He does not choose one. He summarizes them. God is loving. Interestingly enough, people don't disagree with him here, do they? But watch what happens. It gets better. Now, this, this wasn't Ezra W. Smith who asked this question. It was one of, his, one of his buddies who asked this question. And watch. The scribe, the Pharisee who asked the question, said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of his heart and with all of the understanding, with all the strength, yeah. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. Yeah. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared him asking any more questions. He wins over the Pharisee. He came asking this question, probably hoping to trap him, but then he goes, well, that's a great answer, and that's really true. You know, you're not so bad. And then everyone else is like, stop, stop asking him. No one else is allowed. No one else is allowed to ask him questions. Unbelievable. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Randy, good to see you up. 
Are you well? Yeah, uh, yeah, it just uh, turns out I needed a, a five-hour energy drink and a shot of espresso, Jack, and I was uh, good to go. Uh, do not call good me Jack again, please. Oh, uh, Ezra, apologies. please tell me how that went for you. Ah, uh, boy, uh, you know, it went pretty good. It was I, terrible. No, it, uh... They actually, got humiliated, I, I Jack. I many times. No, uh, My name you is are Ezra humiliated. Smith. Don't come up and hear you This is Now listen, we all have a problem. We have to deal with it. The rural people of Judea, they love this Jesus. They follow him about through the desert. This is a problem for you, Ezra, for they are your people and you are losing them. And it's a problem for you too, Randy, if that is your real name. Because if they stop bringing the gold to the temple, you get no more gold and you get no more power. That we have to do a, something. That is a real problem, Jack. Can we please just get along? I, I take your point, yeah. Methuselah. Please hug and make peace. Um, yeah, Ezra. Okay. Okay. Yeah, real nice. I think we're good. I think we're okay. See, now they don't like it. Now they're even almost defending one another. They're like, hey, hey, nobody puts baby in a corner. Come on. And move on. After here, they're very defensive, and, and Jesus begins to tell parables. Maybe he has a little bit more space to even speak now, you know, because now everyone's too scared. So he tells this parable. Now, I want you to put yourself real quick, try to put yourself in the place, the mindset of a Pharisee or a Sadducee here or of anyone else who's sitting and watching. Maybe you're a sick person. Maybe you're somebody who wants uh, Rome to be overthrown. Just pick one of those and listen to what Jesus says here. Um, oop. As I switch over to my Bible. Okay. Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard. A vineyard, usually, uh, in these stories, has a direct and obvious parallel to his hearers of the nation of Israel. A man planted a nation. And they would have known that. And he put fences around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get uh, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant and the tenants are in charge or they're they're. they're were meant to tend to the people and tend to the, the vineyard. But they're taking it now as if it's theirs. He sends them more people. And they struck uh, this messenger on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That is the story. If you are a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you are enraged right about now. Do you know why? Because these two groups had been plotting to kill Jesus. 
The implication is this. First of all, the implication is that Jesus knows them. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're planning. The second is this. Jesus is saying he is the son of God and has authority that overarches theirs. And the third is this. These leaders, religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, have had God's prophets come and they've killed the prophets over and over again. They've run people out pretending they had the authority. And finally, there comes one who calls himself the son of God and they're gonna kill him too. At this moment, they wanted to lay hands on him right then, it said. They're looking, they, and he didn't say, he didn't say, you're doing it. He just told a story. I'm just telling a story here. They're wanting to kill him right there, but they couldn't because of the crowds, all the crowds. Now, if you're a sick person, or you're a poor person, or you're just someone who loves God and loves Israel, you're hearing the story, you're going, maybe you just shrug and go, I didn't get that one. Maybe you go, hey, I like that because, because now maybe I can get invited. Maybe now it's, it's mine because he says uh, uh, to give it to others, so maybe now I can get part of the vineyard. He told so many stories like this. Ones weren't faithful, it was taken away. You see, their inheritance and their authority, they thought, would last forever, and there's nothing that could change it. It could not be taken away, and here he is telling them in one parable after another, it will be taken away, and it will be given to someone else, someone more deserving. You were invited to the feast, another parable says. You did not come, so we will invite people from the highways and the byways. It's a hard, hard thing for them to hear. Finally, sorry, issue here. Finally, <laughs> whoa. As if they weren't already upset with him, he begins to just come right out with it. He'd been beating around the bush a lot here, and finally, he, he just goes on and, and implicates them. Woe to you, Pharisees, various reasons. You shut up the kingdom of heaven. You devour widows' houses. You make converts of your wickedness. You obey the nitty-gritty and ignore the heart of the law. You kill the prophets. You are whitewashed tombs. Your graves, your graves, but you, you, you slapped a coat of paint on there. See, inside you're dead inside, but you got a really shiny coat of paint. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion, self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Cleanse the inside. You guys look great, but your hearts are death. Get your hearts right, he says to them. Just in case they weren't angry with him. Part four, the calm before the storm. Here, he's made enemies of everyone except for the common people. And they look for him, and they can't find him. He went home to Bethany. He didn't show up on Wednesday. I can't find him. Massive manhunt. The kids are still out waving palm branches every morning, sitting out on the different stairs of the temple. Hosanna, where is he? 
Hosanna, where is he? I thought he was coming. They're all telling stories of David. I imagine them carrying their slings and stones going, Rabbi, look! He's not coming. He lays low, and his disciple Judas strikes a deal to turn him over. The next day, they're still looking for him, and uh, he ends up making preparations with his disciples to do something very discreet. That's to have the Passover meal very discreetly with only, without the crowds, completely without the crowds, bypassing the crowds. Imagine they were relieved in a big way. And, you know, he puts on a mask. He walks down. It's like a Pontius Pilate mask, and they all get out of the way. <laughs> they get in this room, and then they have this feast together. This... Um, this feast couldn't have been more tense, I think. We talked a little bit about this last week and all the things that Jesus was bringing up and one of them was that well, he, he read the heart of someone at the table, one of you will betray me. And he points out Judas and Judas gets up and runs away and still it appears they don't get it. I don't know why. But Jesus begins talking about some very hard things to them. This is called the Last Supper. Now, here's what he says. He says, I'm about to go away, and you're going to be sad. And then he takes bread, and he breaks it. Now, strip away all that you know about communion here for a second. Strip all that away. You're a disciple now. You've been with him. You love him. He's your rabbi. He's your friend. You've been with him for three years, day in and day out. He takes his lunch and he breaks it. And he says, this is, well, this is my body broken. It's gonna be broken, me, for you. And he takes wine and he says, here's my blood shed for you. And they're all looking, they're, can you imagine how uncomfortable this would make you? But Jesus, no, you can see why Peter was like, stop, stop talking like that, stop. He's trying to get something into their heads, you guys. Something very bad is coming, or it's going to seem very bad to you. You're going to have to push through, but I'm going to be taken, and I'm going to be broken. This is not what they want to hear. And then this, he takes a basin of water, wraps a towel around him, and he goes around to his friends who have followed him. He's been the master, no mistake about it. Worship team, can you come? He's been the master, he's been the teacher. And he comes to Peter to wash his feet. And he comes to Bartholomew to wash his feet and to John and to James and every one of these guys. You know who would have loved this? The Pharisees and the Sadducees might have loved it. Yeah, you're nothing but a slave, they might have said. This is appropriate. You have no authority. You're just a servant, a slave, but not his people. Do you know why? Because he wasn't a slave to them. He was supposed to be Lord. He was supposed to be riding on the heavens with God. Do you remember James and John asking Hey, when you go up with the right hand, when you go up with the Father, can we sit at your right and your left? They had ambitions, they had plans. This was not one of them, not Jesus becoming a servant. 
See, this wasn't just offensive because they didn't feel worthy. This went against all of their expectations for him. And it was tragic. Here's the thing. Everybody had plans for him. Everybody had plans for Jesus. Nobody apparently thought to ask him what his plans were. Think about all the groups we've talked about this morning. The Sadducees had plans for him. They wanted him to disappear. They wanted him to get out of the way so they could have their power back. The Pharisees wanted him out of the way so they could have their esteem back. The crowds, the crowds, they, they had plans for him. They wanted him to be their king so they could get their nation back. The zealots in the crowd, the ones who hated Rome, they wanted him to wield the sword like David so they could get their revenge. Everybody had plans for Jesus. Even the disciples had plans for Jesus, and it was this. You are great, and we're going to sit with you in great places. That was their plans for him. At very least, even... At the very least, he could stay with them and be their own personal Messiah, their own personal Son of Man. Everybody had plans for Jesus. It was all about making him serve their purposes. Do you see that? Do you see the tragedy in this? How Jesus' heart must have broken at hearing the, the ambition of John and James' mother. All of these people wanted Jesus for something. He was a means to their own ends. Even the disciples, it seems he was a means to their own ends. No wonder Jesus walks out of the Last Supper heartbroken over all he's seen. All the hosannas now have died down. The crowds are about to turn because he's let them down. They were expecting him to, they were expecting a Robin Hood type last second, you know, he's gonna bust out and he's gonna, they're expecting something amazing and it's not gonna happen. So they're all turning, everybody's, Everybody's disappointed because he didn't bring them the presence they wanted. And Jesus says this as he goes to his father. Just close your eyes and listen to his prayer here. Listen to his prayer to the father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He says, this is eternal life. He defines eternal life. This is eternal life, that they might know you and know me. You see, it's not having esteem. That's not the fullness of life. It's not having power or comforts. It's not even having a flag that you can wave of a strong nation with a strong destiny. It's not even having a buddy. It's not even having Jesus as your buddy. It's knowing the Father and knowing Christ and having the fullness of him in your heart. You guys, eternal life is not even heaven. When we invite people into eternal life, what we're inviting them into 
is to know him forever and ever and ever. This is eternal life. You know, this whole season started weeks ago as the season of Lent, and we're not a super traditional church in case you couldn't tell by our videos today. Sorry if you're offended. We're not being flippant. We just like to make stories come alive. But this is a season of Lent, and it's a season of repentance. And this morning, this is a wonderful time as we prepare our hearts to remember the sacrifice of Christ and to see that vividly. Please come Friday night if you're able to. We're gonna see that vividly again and then celebrate his resurrection. But before we do that, this is the season to quiet our hearts before the Lord and to see if there be any wicked way in us. And it's not necessarily just sin. It can be as subtle as with the disciples and the crowds. It could be this. Is he a means to your end? Or is he the end himself? Why do we seek after him? Do we seek after him for joy? Do we seek after him for, uh, for, for favor? Do we seek after him for wholeness? Do we seek after him to be looked on well by others? Do we seek after him to conquer the things we don't like about ourselves? Or do we seek after him for his own sake? Why do you serve him? Because eternal life isn't any of those things. Eternal life is knowing him. Eternal life is having him. This is the lesson of this whole road to the cross. Hosanna is not, save us, O God, from Rome or these other things. Hosanna is this, God, save me from my own heart. We're gonna sing Hosanna again. And I wanna invite you, search your heart and cry it out. This is an upbeat song and it's appropriate because now we can take this word and this message, which was twisted in a weird way and restored to the way it was. Hosanna, save us, O God. Lord, examine my heart as I bring myself back to you again. I love you, Lord Jesus, and I will not allow even the good things to become the goal when you yourself are the goal. You are eternal life. Let's sing this song together. And if the Lord's putting that on your heart, I want to invite you to come forward and just sing it with all your heart. Lord, save me again from my own intentions. And then it turns to worship as we say, thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. When we see you, we find strength to face the day. And in your presence, all our fears are washed away. And when we see you, we find strength to face the day. And in your presence, all our fears are washed away, washed away.
wonderful God. And we want to make opportunity today, maybe you're here and it's time to remember this God, that he is the Lord, that he is your savior. And today is a day where you're recognizing, I want to make him Lord again. I don't, I, I need something greater than just a buddy, as Pastor Jason said. I need to recognize that he cannot be just my savior, my fire insurance for the future someday but that he must be my Lord now. And if that's the case, then today would be a rededication. But for some of us, you may have just heard the story of the gospel and you've not yet said, Hosanna, come save me, oh God, from my own heart. And if that's the case, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. It's a simple prayer. In the same way that to introduce one person to another is a simple introduction but how many of you ended up falling in love with that person and marrying them? But it began with an introduction, and so this prayer is much like that. So let's pray together, shall we? I'm going to speak, and if it resonates in your heart, then I'd like you to repeat it. And at the end, we'll say amen. And for some of you, it will be a rededication, and for some of you, it will be a beginning. Amen? It begins with our own heart. And it's a confession. So the first thing we're going to pray is, Father, I recognize that I have sinned and I am a sinner. Let's pray that together. Father, I recognize that I have sinned and I am a sinner. The second part is that I can't save myself. So we're going to pray that I recognize I cannot save myself. I recognize I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins. And I ask that you would save me. Jesus, I do believe you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. Savior. 
I surrender my life to you. Reconcile me with the Father. And I will follow you all of my life. Let me receive your Holy Spirit and teach me all truth. Amen. Is there anyone here today that this is the first time that you've surrendered your life to the Lord? Would you just raise your hand that we could rejoice with you? Come on. Praise God. Right back here in the back. We rejoice with you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The prayer servant team is going to come to the front. If you need prayer for anything, be it emotional or physical healing or encouragement, please come and allow them to pray with you. And uh, Jason and myself will be at the back of the room. We'd love to shake your hand and get to know you. If you're here for the first time, we'd love to say hello. We have a gift for you. We do want to let you know that uh, actually the children are still finishing their time travel trip. And they have about seven more minutes before the time capsule gets back. And so we want to encourage you to please just visit with one another for about seven minutes before you go get your kids because they're not ready just yet. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may he give you peace. Take these cards that are on the seat and invite someone to come to church next Sunday. Put that in their hand. Co-labor with what God's doing, that this Easter we would see hundreds of people come to Christ. Amen?